Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I interview explorer Sarah Marquis. From 2010 to 2013, Marquis trekked alone on foot from Siberia all the way to Australia. She survived fever delirium in Laos, tropical ringworm in northern Thailand, and the threat of arrest in China. Our Marquis' most recent trip, she spent three months hazarding an almost impassable area of Tasmania. We chat about food, eating in the wild, and why mental health is as important on these treks as physical well-being. What those expeditions teach me, it's we can face nearly everything, you know. We are so strong inside And my mission is to link human and nature to find that little bridge between those two. Before my conversation with Marquis, I interview Lizzie Collingham. In her latest book, The Taste of Empire, Collingham examines the history of Great Britain's global food system. Lizzie, how are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. This is uh, The Taste of Empire is a big book. It's a, a dense book, has lots of great research. So let's start in Newfoundland. It was so interesting. You said the Newfoundland fish trade laid the foundation for the British Empire. What, what does that mean? Well, the thing is, when they discovered Newfoundland and its seas absolutely heaving with cod, I mean, the cod were so thick in the sea that if you went in a rowing boat, you had difficulty getting your oars through the fish. When they went there and found this, they were looking for the sea route to the East Indies. So this was a chance thing. However, then fishermen would go every summer from the West Country and catch cod, salt it down, and then bring it back um, in the winter. And by doing that, they realized that you can get food in one place, like this salt cod, and then sell it in another, uh, they sold it to the Portuguese and the Spanish who loved salt cod. And for that, in return, they got wine and silver. So it sets the foundation for all those trading triangles that later come along. Then your book turns to Barbados. Mm. The sugar industry, the boiling of the sugar is complicated. Uh, Mm. You talk about five large copper pots. You added lime. The last pot is taken off when the sugar crystallizes, which I assume is really tricky to time properly. And then over a period of weeks or months, the uh, molasses drains out of it and you get this uh, soft brown sugar, right, that's Mm. left. Yeah, and growing sugarcane is a very complicated, tricky process. When Drax brought it over from from Brazil first, it took him ages because he was trying to grow it and harvest it and process it all within 12 months. And he didn't realize that actually sugarcane grows on an 18-month cycle. And it's horrible to harvest. It has sharp leaves and you get cut and rolling the juice. You put it through rollers and getting the juice out of it. It's horrible because you might get your hands or your clothes caught. And so it's a really nasty, hard process. And Drax, Drax is the guy who started the first sugar plantation on Barbados, right? 
Yeah, in the 1640s, he goes across to Portuguese Brazil where they're already growing sugar and they're looking for a cash crop. The tobacco they're growing on Barbados is wet and stinky and moldy. One guy sends it back to his father in England. He says, oh, don't send me any more of that. They're looking for a cash crop. And then he brings across the sugar and within a couple of years, everybody's trying to emulate him and grow sugar and that starts it all off. One of the most interesting things in your book taste of empire was the the notion that spices eventually fall out of favor. They obviously were very popular in medieval times. A lot of spices were used in medieval European cooking, but then they became cheap with, with the spice trade and they no longer were exclusive. And so they became ordinary. Yeah. And no sooner have you got lots of them, then you don't really want to put them on your table, really. They're not fancy anymore. You can't show off with spices anymore. We're a consumer society. And so these days we're still banging on about, oh, the best cuts of meat and the best vegetables and the rarest vegetables, because that's where we can show off. But, you know, even in the medieval period, the Europeans had learned how to cook with spices, that complexity of flavor, that depth. They'd learned all of that from the Middle East. So in a way, we've always been at the fringes of that complexity. and We've always had to learn it from other people. Uh, Let's go back to sugar for a while. Um, Doctors eventually turn against sugar. Mm. Uh, They decide it heats up your blood. And so you make an interesting point that drinking tea was really about consuming sugar. Absolutely. Yeah, because the thing is, when tea comes in from China, uh, you know, it doesn't have sugar in it. The Chinese don't put sugar in their tea, right? And There's a couple of tracts written by some quite obscure 18th century doctors who argued that, you know, you could get around the heating and dangerous effects of sugar if you put it in a bitter herbal infusion. They don't mention tea. And it does seem a bit of an obscure jump to then say, well, this is what was going on. But actually, I think that that probably is what was going on, that people were looking for a way to eat as much sugar as they possibly could. And then, of course, sweet tea becomes the drink of the working classes, because it gives them the energy that they need that they can't afford in any other way. So sweet tea becomes absolutely imbricated into the Industrial Revolution, and that's one of the things that, you know, the workers rely on. Let's go back just a few little bits and pieces I, I liked. You said that on, on boats, uh, you, you'd bring livestock, of course, especially on a well-provisioned voyage, and you said that goats roamed freely around the deck. So I know, isn't that nice? I just like I, that doesn't quite the, the 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 British Navy. I don't quite see goats running around uh, the deck. <laughs> oh no, seriously, the goats would roam around. I don't know if it's on the deck, but they'd roam around it in the in the where the sailors were had their hammocks and stuff because that was a problem because they'd keep their bread in a bag and if they they'd have to hang it up if they had it too low, the goats would nibble on it and eat it. So yeah, no, no, I think. Our image of of what a a sailing ship would have looked like, if it's orderly and tidy, that's completely the wrong thing. They would have been absolutely stinky, messy, full, crowded. And there's a goat, actually, that goes around the world twice on the first voyage, you know, Magellan's voyage. And then they take it again for another voyage around the world. There's a goat that's actually circumnavigated the world (laughs) twice. Well, before any human manages it. So goats were absolutely essential on, on board ship. So, so after doing all this research and writing this wonderful book, is there one thing that stuck, a lot of things struck me as interesting and different, but one fact that really you didn't expect that came out of your research? Oh, uh, I guess in a way what I was 
hoping for, well, what I expected that was that from this medley of movement and peoples that you would then get this incredible kind of mixtures of cuisines and so on. And that's true, you do, you do get a lot of that. So in India, you get the chilies get taken in and they adopt um, potatoes. But what really struck me was how the British Empire had this horrible effect of homogenizing food. So everywhere the British went, they took with them hardtack, so flour and water baked until it was hard, salt meat or salt fish, a bit of sugar, some tea, some rum, and that was kind of the basic industrial ration. And uh, it's what they take with them when they put in their wheelbarrows, when they go, you know, looking for gold and have to go across the Rockies. It's what they put in their canoes when they go exploring it. That's what they take everywhere. And it's the power of the homogenizing effect of the empire really struck me and was kind of actually rather, well, fascinating, but also a little bit depressing. That it was so, you know, it made everybody eat the same in a really boring way, a bit like we think of as the hamburger going everywhere. Right. Really, the first industrial meal, the first global meal was this kind of hard tack and salt meat that went everywhere with the British. Well, the, the British Empire was the Howard Johnsons of empires, right? <laughs> Every location served exactly the same food. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Lizzie, thank you so much. It's so interesting when someone does original research that you you get the real story. It's not just the, the usual history. And uh, I learned so much. Thank you, Lizzie. It's a pleasure. That was Lizzie Collingham, the author of The Taste of Empire, How Britain's Quest for Food Shaped the Modern World. Mill Street Radio is also available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. Subscribe and you'll get every episode downloaded right to your phone or tablet each week. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. Now it's time to take some of your questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. She's also the author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Therese. Hi, Therese. Where are you calling from? I live in Dallas, Texas right now. How can we help you? I need to understand if there is a ratio when making souffles between what I call the batter and the egg whites. And in order to make any kind of a souffle, whether it's a sweet souffle or a savory souffle, what I wanted to know is, is there a ratio between those two things that I can start to use that as a basis to make souffles? You know, I once asked Julia Child that question. She gave me... She knew right off the top of her head the exact ratio, which I've now totally forgotten. <laughs> One thing I've noticed, though, it's a good point because a lot of recipes will have, you know, 10 egg whites to five yolks or four yolks. I found the recipes where there's roughly an equal number of whites to yolks. I find you get a much creamier, more satisfactory, less foamy souffle, but I'm sitting next to the doyenne of souffles. So, Sarah? Well, I didn't realize there actually was any fixed proportion. You know, most souffles start with a bechamel base, you know, with a cream base. Right, Uh uh-huh. There really is no, I think you have to follow a recipe and decide. I will tell you one thing that's very important, though. If there isn't sugar added to the egg white element, take it out of the base and add it to the whites because whites are far more stable when you beat them with sugar. I'd also add a quarter teaspoon of cream of tartar to the whites. Yes, or better yet, and lemon Chris juice. Is, Chris is now going to be mad at me. Beat them in a copper bowl. Oh, please. No, the copper. Which I do. 
Good. Oh, no. No, no. I know, I know. No, 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 no. It's scientific. There's a reaction between the copper and the egg whites, which keeps the souffle up longer. The other thing is, in terms of sugar, maybe we agree on this, I hopefully, like for every two whites add a tablespoon of sugar yes. when you're beating them. Yes. That's a good rule. Yes. You'll have okay. a much better result. Yeah, absolutely. The whites will be creamy and denser, not foamy and airy. Yeah, yeah. and they'll hold Got up they'll so hold much up better. better. Okay. And then my last question on that same line would be, so you've never gone through a situation where you've actually weighed the batter? No. No. You're getting very precise, which is smart, but it has to do with the density of the base also. But that would be reflected in the weight. It would. No, I I think actually she's ahead of us. I think you should weigh it in grams, and then for every 100 grams of whatever it is, of base, you add X number of egg whites. Yeah. I think that's, actually, that's the right way to Would do it. Would you figure that out and let yeah. us know? That's very smart. You are a serious baker. Well, no, but weighing is essential in baking. And it it's yeah. it's crazy that here in America, almost nobody weighs ingredients, whereas makes such a professional bakers and folks in Europe tend to weigh more than we do. And that's makes it more standardized and yeah, more success. So good idea. Thank you, Tree. And please, please do let us know how it goes and what ratio you yeah, come up with. Yeah, we want the ratio. We want to know. Yeah, it's a good idea. I will do it. All right. I promise I will do it. Thanks. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Michael McGuire. And where are you calling from? I'm calling from Dallas, Texas. How can we help you today? I travel a lot, and I really have grown fond of bread that's readily available in Russia, their traditional brown bread. And I have tried lots and lots of recipes, and I don't get close to the texture. I've even read old news groups from baking stuff, and they talk about it being more like brewing beer, a fermentation of a, a oh, I guess it's almost 100% rye bread or something. I have no idea where to find a recipe, and I was hoping you guys could help me. Austria. They specialize in really dark breads and dark rye breads, and they are sort of malty, some of them. And so Austrian recipes for dark breads are also, and German recipes for dark breads are also wonderful. I think there are plenty of recipes out there. I guess the question is where to get the flours or... I just can't get the density. They always turn out lighter. Most of the American recipes always use uh, yeast, I guess, maybe. I don't know how they do it in a factory over there, but the one I usually get most often is definitely a caraway. You know, it's 100% rye with caraway, but it's when you're using 100% rye bread, I guess, I don't know how you you get the texture. Tell us, what is the texture like? It's dense. I mean, it's obviously done in a bread pan. It's uh, maybe four inches by eight inches. Oh, so it's it's not a round or bull bread. It's actually... Not a round. It's like a, a loaf pan shape. When you talk to people over there, they don't bake it. Uh, because every town has a bakery that does it commercially, and it's consistent. Have you ever heard of the book, it's called The Rye Baker by Stanley Ginsberg? No. Well, it's out there. I've seen it. I have not read through it, but I wonder if you could try to find a copy and see if there might be an answer in there. If you have a whole book about rye bread, it seems like there should be Russian rye in there. Absolutely. That's a great suggestion. Thank you. I would try that book, The Rye Baker, or an Austrian book, too. I appreciate your suggestions. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Thank you, Michael. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question or just want to know when not to use olive oil, give us a call anytime at 855-426-9843. 
That's 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Stephen from Salt Lake City, Utah. How can we help you? I had a question. I love garlic. I especially love roasted garlic. And I've read that there's a danger of infection from Clostridium botulinum and that you shouldn't store roasted garlic in oil. And I was wondering if there's a good way to prepare it to freeze it so that I could have bulk to use as I needed. Yeah, I've heard the same thing about storing garlic and oil. In an anaerobic environment, botulism can happen, yes. Botulism, that sounds like a t-shirt. Botulism can happen. (laughs) A a note, a message from the FDA. Right. Um, How about just freeze it, right? What I would do is, yeah, roast it in bulk and then puree it or just mash it and put it in ice cube trays, knowing that you'll probably never use those ice cube trays for anything else. That's what I would do. I think it it would freeze perfectly. Right. Okay. The other thing you can do, I love is take a whole head of garlic, cut off the top quarter, just remove any loose paper on the outside, and throw that into a stew or soup. And when the stew or soup is done, take it out, squeeze it with tongs, and that rich, creamy garlic, which does not have a strong flavor, it's just very mellow, Right. just whisk that back into the liquid. We'll sort of thicken it up, too. It's terrific. Yeah. It's my favorite way to use garlic. But he wants to stockpile the stuff. So I think, yeah, yeah go ahead, make it in bulk, you know, just mash it, put it in ice cube trays, and you're good yeah. to go. Agree. Okay. That really helps out. Okay, Stephen. Thanks for calling. Thank you. All right, thank you. Yeah. Goodbye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sandra from Canyon Lake, Texas. How are you? Well, the reason I'm calling is that I have never successfully cooked a steak. Never. It's either been too tough or it was, um, I put some papaya rinds on it one time and it came out kind of mushy. Mushy, yeah. So I gave up. Well, what, uh, what, of, what cut? Yeah. What's the cut? I think it was a T-bone. Okay, well, we'll give you two ways to change your life. Uh, <laughs> heat the oven to 250. Take the steak out an hour before you want to cook it, if you can. Salt it. Put it on a rack on a baking sheet. Throw it in the oven for 15 or 20 minutes till the internal temperature gets up to about 90 or 95. Use an okay. instant read thermometer. And put it in sideways. And grill it off. Sideways? Yes. Well, the, you don't the temperature want to put, probe. You don't want to put the needle thing straight down through the steak. Mm-hmm. You want to put it in sideways a couple of inches. You get a better reading. I think she meant you put the steak in sideways. So just, oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> put the thermometer in the steak and sideways. And then you can finish it off on a grill a couple minutes aside or a very hot cast iron pan, however you want to do it, and bring the temperature up to whatever you want, 120, 125. If you salt it ahead of time and let it sit in a low oven to get mostly up to temperature. And it'll become very tender and it'll have a lot more flavor. Can I add something else to that? Um, how do you like your steak? Medium rare, medium, What? how do you like it? Medium rare. Okay. You'll find that mostly the outside of the steak, almost all the way down to a tiny bullseye, is more well done than you like. And just the center of the steak will be medium rare. The way that Chris just described cooking the steak, you will have medium rare almost from the top to the bottom, you know, throughout the steak. So... I think what he just suggested is a fantastic way to cook steak. And T-bone is a good steak to cook. You've got a combination of the filet and the loin, and um, it should be rather thick. How thick do you usually get? Um, not quite an inch, maybe. I think it would be nicer if you yeah, got a thicker, yeah, a, a thicker one would be it's better. Yeah. yeah. Wow. 
Okay. But or New York Strip also is great. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think that we agree on that. Wow. Yeah. Dear Diary. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra, for bringing us together. Dear Diary, today, We're holding Sarah hands. And it's I... a kumbaya moment. Yes. Yay. We're about to sing. Well, thank you so much. I'll try it. I'm so excited. No, it'll work. First time. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Sandra. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Kumbaya, when did you go to college? Oh, the 60s and 70s. Oh, 60s and 70s. Just like you. Just like me. Just like you. You're listening to Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my interview with explorer Sarah Marquis, right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. 
we are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. In 2010, explorer Sarah Marquis set off on her first major expedition a three-year trek from Siberia to the Gobi Desert into China, Laos, Thailand, and then across Australia. Her most recent expedition was in 2018, a three-month traverse through Tasmania, during which she almost died. Sarah, how are you? Really good, thank you. It's great to have you back. You know, uh, last time we spoke, you had completed the journey, three-year journey, from the Gobi Desert down to Australia, but since then you've also spent uh, a few months traveling in Tasmania. But let's go back to the beginning. Uh, When you were eight, you ended up finding a cave, spent the night there because you were so fascinated by the bats. And then your mother, of course, went nuts and called the police. So was that the first time you sort of did something crazy? You just decided to spend the night without telling anybody? I think, you know, I think my mom realized that day that uh, she was up to a really long journey with me. <laughs> you know, uh, she had this wild kid and uh, that was the first step out of my big comfort zone, uh, really into the unknown. And I took my dog. I had this little backpack. I had all these things figured out and I, I took off. It was not far from home, though, but that was scary enough for my mom to to uh, understand that she de- she has to deal in the future with this this wandering spirit. You, your first real trip, you took what a book. Uh, when you packed, you packed all the wrong things. You only went out for a few days. So over time, you've gotten really good at packing. So uh, what have you learned about what to take with you and what not to take with you? Well, I learned the water is really heavy. This is my, I, I, I still don't understand why water is so heavy because, you know, at the end of the day, all you need is food and water, really. Uh, and then you go down the priority list. What, what kinds of foods have you learned to bring with you and which kinds of foods don't you bring with you now? First of all, it's all organic. It's, it's, for me, it's really important to have the best products out there, the best quality products also. So before I actually start my trip, I spent one month on location in a city called Obart, which is in the south of Tasmania. And uh, there I went to see every local gardener and uh, I did all the little markets, the food market. I wanted to find the best products. And you have to remember, I'm in the, 
Hobart, it's the end of the world. It's really not that easy to find everything. So I would actually go and talk to those people and say, oh, I need some mango, some organic dry mango. And over the weeks, they start to know me and they, they start to run after me in the street and say, I've got your mango. <laughs> <laughs> and then I prepare some meals. Uh, I had quinoa. I had all, all these grain food who actually helped me to actually have enough energy during the day you know it's 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 a matter of quantity the weight of it and how much energy can actually give you and has to be a full full grain energy nothing refined so let's take the Tasmania trip and just talk about this this is an island what off of australia is that correct Correct. In in the south of uh, south uh, east of uh, of Australia, it's part of Australia, but it's a half a million of populated area. So it's not many people there. On half of the country, the west coast, it's nobody there. So that part of the country is protected and is really wild, and uh, there is a reason for it because the closest land. It's Antarctica. So that little corner of this world, it's actually affected by the weather system coming huh. from Antarctica. That's why there is nobody there. So how do you, well, you said at night you were scared because you could hear large trees falling in the forest, right? And you were worried yeah. that one of them was going to fall on you. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I had this feeling from the beginning, like an insecure feeling, like a little dark cloud following me nearly it never go away and uh, that feeling never go away and i thought what is going on here and then suddenly the i can get to a, a location where those big massive tree was falling naturally actually and i realized that there was no way out there was no safe spot and i need to deal it with the the the, the fear of you know, you fall asleep and suddenly you don't wake up because one of those massive trees just smash you on the ground. So I start to be more connected to to the land, I guess, to nature, to what's out there. And I, t- I start to be to do like my dog used to be, you know, before I walk with a dog in Australia that I save. And um, before we get to the camp and he will be like sniffing around. And when we get to the camp, he will go around the camp, uh, I don't know, 10 times before he actually find a spot hmm. that he likes. And he will actually dig and make his little bed, you know. And I was doing the same thing. So just feeling the feeling the ground and feeling the area. And so, sometimes I will set up my camp and then suddenly I will change my mind. I will say, no, I don't like it here. Hmm. And I will move. I always trust what I had inside that little voice. And that's what is difficult in this real life. It's actually to be connected to yourself in a deeper level. That's interesting. I mean, let's talk about the little voice. On one hand, uh, you have to manage fear. I assume you're out in a very hostile environment. You might die from any number of problems. So one of your voices is telling you you might not wake up in the morning, but the other voice is telling you to trust your own instincts. How how do you manage fear? Um, You don't manage fear. Fear manages you most of the time, you know? And fear is always there, which is sometimes a good thing, you know, because fear keeps you alive. But it's the quantity of the fear that's really important. So definitely where I was in Tasmania, there was no human for, for, for many years been through those forests. There was not even animals on the ground. And 
Um, so you feel the isolation, you feel it's dark, you, it's wet. So you have every step, it's important. So I know how to deal with those little dark moments coming through your day, you know, when they're coming, uh, I'm keeping positive. It's one step at a time. It's one step at a time. I remind myself then there is nothing impossible. And and our mind, it's actually so powerful. We don't realize it until we face big difficulties like that, you know. So you put good things, good things get out. You put dark things, dark things get out. It's simple as that. Was there a moment in your travels, uh, you've been doing this a long time, where you got to a moment where you could have succumbed to fear uh, and then you would have not been able to pursue this career or you then overcame it and you and you learned to deal with it. Was there a moment when you did that or this was just a very gradual process? I think it's in every expedition, I, I face one of those crucial moments where I could actually die, you know, where that can be the end of it. So in this expedition, especially in Tasmania, I was on the top of a ridge because I noticed on the bottom of the ridge near the river, the vegetation was so thick that I could not go through. Some days I would do 10 hours walking and making two kilometers, one mile. And, and that's a nightmare, you know, you, can, you, don't, you don't move. And that's really bad for the spirit, definitely. So I decided to go on the top of the ridge and I realized that the top of the ridge was a bit better. Then one day, I in the middle of nowhere, I face the fact that I was it was like a big gorge, a big cliffs, and like a when you cut when you cut a cake, a piece of in a cake, that was exactly the same cut in a rock. So I needed to go down that ridge and follow the edge of the cliff all the way down to the bottom. And in the bottom, there was a little river going through it, and then cross the river and go back up at the other side. And anyway, I go down, 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 and I realize I could not cross. I need to go to the bottom of it. And probably 15 meters before the bottom, I went all the way close to the edge. And then suddenly everything's collapsed. And then I I, I black out and I... Um, the water actually woke me up because the water was running through my Gore-Tex jacket and my, my pants. I just realized that I was in a river. I was like, suddenly I thought, Sarah, stand up, stand up. You know, I had this boy inside me yelling at me, now, stand up now. And I realized I was already a little bit sleepy, you know, hypothermia do that to you. You suddenly fall asleep and it's over. And so I decided to stand up and I realized uh, I could not use the left side of my body. I say, whatever, you know, I'm going, I'm not taking off anything, not my backpack, not my shoes, I'm going. And I, I did little, little, little step with a really excruciating pain because I realized three days later that I had a broken shoulder. I, yeah, I, I've just, I, if it was not clear to me that this would not be a good career for me, I think <laughs> this, this experience explains why you do what you do and why I don't do what you do. Anyway, so how did you walk? You ended up with actually a broken arm, right? It wasn't just a yeah, shoulder. broken shoulder. Actually, oh. that's the top of the the shoulder. That was a, like a, a a clear cut where the bones get get cut from the top oh. of the shoulder. Yeah. So if you have a broken shoulder, 
that takes a long time to heal. So you were back yeah. back on the trail in a couple of weeks, but your shoulder wasn't healed yet, right? No. I went to the emergency room and this nice doctor said to me, oh, it's definitely not broken. It's definitely probably a, a dislocated shoulder. So I said, yeah, that's what I thought, actually. And he said, but we, we're going to do an X-ray, you know, in case. And we come back from the X-ray. It was like, no, it's broken. <laughs> <laughs> and he said to me, well, it's a six weeks immobilization, Miss Marquis. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, he said, come back next week. And uh, every week I would go and see him and we will do an X-ray. And after two weeks, he said, well, actually, the calcification, it's actually starting. I'm so proud of you. You haven't moved at all. I said, no. And I decided after two weeks, I said to him, you know what? I'm off. I'm out of here. It's it's not going to work for me. And I start walking again. So I, I just wanted to finish. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I don't know if it was the Tasmanian trip or your other trip, but you said, Australia, but you were uh, uh, using a bucket to get water out of a river and having trouble getting the bucket out of the water, you discovered something else was grabbing onto it. Yeah, that was my first encounter with the crocodile. <laughs> I threw my bucket in the water and I tried to retrieve it. And suddenly I thought it was a branch. And I thought, why actually I throw that bucket in the water on the top of a branch? You know, I'm stupid or what? And I keep pulling, you know, towards me. And uh, suddenly the bucket would, would throw me out of my location. I'm like, oh, my God, this is a crocodile. Give me my bucket back. And I, I realized that I was fighting with the crocodile on my first day. So, you know, you know, there is another thing like in life, you always got little sign on the way, you know. And I, w I was thinking this is a big sign, you know. I understand now the seriousness of this expedition. This is not going to be an easy one. Did we, so you get back to civilization. I've always wondered, like, people complain about their cell phone reception or the coffee isn't hot enough or they don't like their commute to work. Do you, <laughs> When people complain <laughs> about that sort of thing and you just broke your shoulder in the middle of nowhere and had to get evacuated, almost died, do, do you have uh, – how, how do you deal with the normal complaints of everyday sort of Western civilization? Well, it's um, it's interesting. It's a good, really good question, you know, because what those expeditions teach me, it's we can face nearly everything, you know. We are so strong inside. And, and I mean, every one of us, not only me, because I, I'm just normal uh, at the base. I've just been focused on uh, on one thing was my, my, my calling, which was uh, my mission. And my mission is to link human and nature to find that little bridge between those two. But th that's teach me a lot. That means like we complaining, but we like to complain. It's one of those little things we do as a human. It's okay, you know, but we, we should actually see the bright side side of everything also. It's okay to complain, but it's okay to actually see the bright side also and to smile at people and to say thank you and to recognize the awesomeness of our living because we don't have big problem actually most of the time. You know, we've got food, we've got water, we've got a shelter. And that's all we want, really. That's all we need. I think at the end of the day, you, you said your conclusion, one of them was, uh, what was outside was inside me. Right. Yeah, exactly. So when you go through all these, you need to outsmart everything all the time. So you have to figure things out because everything surrounding me, it's unknown most of the time. So 
you cannot learn from books what's outside. Every time I'm in the wild, I need to learn by myself and make association of things and, and learn by my way. So by doing this, I become nature. So what was surrounding me was actually inside me at the end of the trip. This is for me the reward of everything because at the end, there is no me or nature. I'm, I'm nature at the end. And that's, that's a, a massive achievement for me. That's the biggest achievement I could actually do. It's realizing uh, nature, it's in me. Sarah, once again, a fabulous honor and pleasure to speak with you, and we wish you all the best on your next expedition. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was explorer Sarah Marquis. I first interviewed Sarah after she completed her three-year journey through the Gobi Desert to Australia. Although the physical challenges were enormous, finding water in an immense desert, avoiding armed locals, and enduring lightning storms in the Gobi that were much like artillery barrages, her biggest challenge turned out to be mental. In Tasmania, the fear of falling trees, the constant rain, and the extreme monotony of the trip weighed more heavily than the physical challenges. You know, Sarah is one of those people who likes to find out what she's made of, if she has the mental stamina to endure the constant threat of disaster and even death. Unlike the rest of us, living on the knife edge of endurance is Sarah's happy place. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, ricotta semolina cheesecake. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Okay, I'm going to rant about cheesecakes. I don't like wet cheesecakes, and I don't like heavy cheesecakes. And about 20 years ago, I was in New York, uh, below house and near the Bowery somewhere, and there was a great Italian restaurant, and they had a ricotta cheesecake, which is nothing new, but it had a, almost a black top to it. It was cracked. Uh, it was nice and dry. It was kind of light and had a lot of flavor. And so instead of just cream cheese, obviously ricotta is the base. So I thought we should take a shot at that because I like it. <laughs> That's an excellent reason to do a recipe. So how do we get started? So just to start, Chris, you just said that you liked a dry black cracked cheesecake. So I just sort of want to break it down for anyone listening that it is delicious and it really is a cheesecake. I mean, we use ricotta, like you said. We also use mascarpone, which is basically an Italian cream cheese, but it's a little bit lighter. It's a little bit creamier. Uh, this cheesecake has some structure to it because we add a little bit of semolina flour, which, you know, we think of pasta in the U.S., but just a little bit gives it that beautiful crust and also gives it some structure. And in the end, you end up with a much lighter, not soggy, leaden cheesecake. So is this the same gig? Whole eggs, cream cheese or cheese, standing mixer, beat them, put them in a uh, springform pan, and then, of course, into the water bath? No, Chris. Uh, two things. First of all, it's basically the same technique, but you do need to whip the egg whites. That's going to give you that light, fluffy structure we're looking for. But happy news for you, no water bath is necessary. You're simply going to throw it in the oven and bake it for 40 to 45 minutes. You do want to tap it on the counter before you throw it in the oven to get rid of any air bubbles. And then when it just is set but has a little bit of jiggle, you take it out. And then, of course, you have to be patient. It needs to cool for two hours and then needs to go into the fridge to cool a bit longer. But no water bath. So no water bath. But now let's get to the most often asked culinary question in the world, at least America, is why does my cheesecake crack on the top? So does this crack? 
Chris, it does, but you don't have to worry about it. So with a traditional cheesecake where you have your water bath, you have your dense piece of cheesecake, if it cracks on top, that probably means you overcooked your cheesecake. Here, you don't have to worry about it. With the light ricotta texture, the egg whites, the semolina, it will crack, but it's not overcooked. So just don't worry about it. So no water bath, don't have to worry about the cracking, delicious ricotta flavor. Uh, what could be better? Nothing, so it's perfect cheesecake. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for ricotta semolina cheesecake at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up next, Adam Gopnik considers going vegetarian. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here at Milk Street, we're big fans of Oaxacan hot chocolate, which uses freshly roasted cacao beans to provide chocolate flavor and finely ground nuts rather than dairy to add richness. At Milk Street, we substituted almond butter for the nuts, which is an easy way to give the drink a rich creaminess. Here's the recipe. 
Combine unsweetened chocolate and hot water in a blender and then add light brown sugar, ground cinnamon, salt, almond butter, and a dash of chipotle chili powder. Blend all of the ingredients until smooth, about 30 to 60 seconds. When you're done blending, pour in one cup of boiling water and stir to combine. You can get the full recipe at 177milkstreet.com. Next up, Adam Gopnik tries to untangle his latest moral dilemma. Adam, how are you? I am all right, Chris. I am fine. I am living through a revolution in manners in my own little family, for which, as you know, I cook um, semi-religiously four or five uh, days (laughs) a week. And the revolution I'm living through is one that you and I have spoken about before, but one that I think we can't get past because it's the central and foundational transformation in uh, food habits in our time. Both of the two women with whom I live, my wonderful 18-year-old daughter Olivia and my wonderful wife Martha, have gone vegetarian. They have given up eating meat of any kind at all. I can sometimes slip a little bit of fish or a shrimp or two or a mollusk onto their plates, but they basically have made the choice for non-meat eating. We've talked about it before, but you know what really brought it home to me in a very vivid way not long ago? I was reading a wonderful new book about Frederick Douglass, you know, the great mm-hmm. um, ex-slave who was the leader of the abolitionist forces, really in the United States before the Civil War. And what was fascinating about it was when Douglass escaped from slavery and went north, he became ensconced in a whaling community in New Bedford. But what was so strange about reading the book is, is that one was simultaneously conscious of Douglass's enormous courage and bravery in in escaping from slavery and leading the anti-slavery movement, but also aware of the enormous cruelty that was being practiced on whales in a way that Douglas, despite his huge sensitivity to human suffering, was unaware of. You can't read about Douglas and whaling without stopping to think about the uh, ritualized, institutionalized practice of enormous cruelty to these great and feeling creatures, whales, and not sense a certain confusion, contradiction, on an enormous moral scale. But I think we all feel, when we're trying to deal with uh, our own daily diet, the question of the rights and wrongs of eating animals. Now, for a long time, Chris, I had thought that the right approach and the approach that had made me feel at peace with eating animals, I'm not sure how you feel about it, uh, was the one that my friend Fergus Henderson, the... uh, owner and chef of St. John in London, had evolved, which is the idea of our responsibility to eat the whole beast. That if we're eating the entirety of an animal, if we're eating the hooves and the ears and the bristles of a pig, (laughs) then we have a moral and ethical right to eat the animal. That that does, I just comment, that does sound a bit like moral gymnastics, but in any case... I, I'm increasingly inclined to think that. On Ferguson's part, I must say, it's, I think it's completely sincere. What he hates is what he calls, memorably, pink in plastic, by which he means our habit of going to the supermarket and buying a piece of pink meat wrapped in plastic with zero consciousness of the animal that it comes from and zero awareness of our own moral responsibility, if you like, of the ethical complexity of the business of eating animals. He feels if we're fully ethically engaged in eating animals, then we have some kind of right to do it. And I'd always thought that that was a reasonable case. But my 18-year-old daughter, whose name is Olivia, uh, has been uh, hawking me about this, and she feels, in words not unlike the ones you just used, Chris, that this is elaborate moral apology rather than serious moral argument. 
her case and the reason why she stopped eating meat despite enjoying hamburger as much as most 18-year-old girls do isn't based so much on arguments about sustainability or arguments about um, energy consumption, all of those things. It's not even based on what I always thought was the strongest argument you could make against eating animals, which was the argument from uh, suffering, that animals are capable of feeling pain and we should never inflict pain on feeling things. Her argument was really about uh, an argument from sort of empathy, that animals, smart animals, like pigs, are as smart as dogs, are capable of anticipating suffering. It's why they become frightened. That it's not so much that the animal's knowledge of pain that should worry us, because after all, we could reduce or minimize or even eliminate pain for the animal we ate. It was their capacity to imagine suffering. And that any animal that we can uh, credibly imagine anticipating or fearing some future pain is not ours to kill. And so Olivia, my Olivia, has totally given up eating red meat, and I am having to eliminate it from uh, our diet. I have not yet come to rest on this question, Chris, which is one of the reasons I wanted to raise it with you. I don't yet know exactly where I stand on it, but I think that when our descendants look back on us, exactly as when we look back, even on so great a man as Frederick Douglass, and wonder how he could have been that insensitive to the suffering of these great and conscious animals, these whales, I think our descendants will look back on us and before they ask any other question, why did they eat sushi? Why did they put cumin in their dishes? They will ask, how did they justify slaughtering animals on such a large scale and eating them? Well, I have a different perspective, as you might imagine, (laughs) which is, it's a question of scale. If you were a, you know, I grew up in Vermont in the summers mm-hmm. in a uh, mountain farm, and those people hunted. You know, most of their meat came from hunting. Right. Uh, some of it came from the, the cattle they had, but just like a heifer, for example. Um, but you were living close to the bone, and meat was essential, really, for survival because you there wasn't much to eat in the winter except potatoes and meat. A- and you knew the animals. You were either hunted it or they were raised on your farm. It, it was very personal. Yes. As people moved to the city, industrial farming came along, agribusiness. All of a sudden, it's the, the red, you know, the red meat and the red plastic. And you're farther away from those decisions about turning an animal into food. And it just seems to me, like I hunt now too. And if you take all those hours it takes to figure out how to find an animal, at the end of the day, I don't feel bad about that. But I, I do understand your daughter's concern about the supermarket. So may, maybe it's scale. It's the depersonalization of the process of taking a life that is really at the heart of the problem. I think that's very well said, Chris. And I think that's sort of what Fergus Henderson was trying to get at with his notion that what's the wrong thing, as you said, is pink and plastic. That as long as our engagement with the animals we eat remains specific and not part of uh, an industrialized and a commodified system that we can say, honestly, that like the country people you're talking about, meat is an essential part of our diet, as it is in Tibet, let's say, where you think they might be vegetarians, the Buddhists, they're not a bit of it. They can't afford to be vegetarians in the deepest human sense. I think those are all good arguments. And as I say, this is one of those issues in which, despite my predilection for uh, premature certainty, I am completely still unsettled. But I do feel that it is the foundational question that we need to be asking ourselves again and again. Adam, thank you very much. Now we have another conundrum about meat and morals. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. 
That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You know, Adam Gopnik's daughter put eating meat into a fresh perspective. It's not so much the pain of death, it's the notion that animals are actually capable of imagining suffering. It's about anticipation. For years, I raised pigs on a Vermont farm, and I can confirm that this is true. Pigs are smart, and once the process begins, it's clear that they understand what is about to happen. You know, on a farm, death is a constant companion. Horses get old, chickens are killed by hawks and fox, families send a beefer off to the meat locker every September. So I wonder if modern life lives so far from death changes the moral equation. For many of us, death is the grim reaper, not an accepted part of daily life. Now, I may not be a vegetarian, but Adam Gopnik's daughter does have a point, one that is driven by our changing views of life and death. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, and order our new book, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.